Welcome to One Life Online, a podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48, titled, Perfection, God's Non-Negotiable Expectation, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will by His grace. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be preaching from verse 33 all the way to the end of that chapter, up to verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 33 to verse 48. Please follow in your Bible as I read. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but you shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. But I say unto you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your conversation be yes, yes, no, no, for whatever is more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it has been said, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. Whoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if anyone will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let them have even your cloak. And whoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the person who asks of you and that would borrow of you and do not turn them away. You have heard that it has been said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven, for your Father who is in heaven makes his son to rise on the just, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those people who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. So we've gone through chapter 5. You have seen that there are aspects of the Beatitudes in each of the practical and personal ways Jesus teaches, especially from verse 21, which we saw last Sunday. So for example, instead of anger and taking offense, the Christian is to be meek, to be merciful, and is to pursue reconciliation and restoration instead of harboring 
anger. You know, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are not those who are angry. So we can see that one sure way to purify our hearts is by not committing adultery, literally or in the heart. And what about divorce? Instead of putting away your wife due to differences, disputes, or disloyalty, blessed are the peacemakers. And we shall see three more today. Last Sunday we saw anger, adultery, and annulment. Today we shall see swear not, striking back, and showing love. Swearing not, striking back, and showing love. In place of swearing carelessly, one can hunger and thirst for justice. I mean, simply do what is right and what is fair. You may be right to retaliate in certain circumstances, but Jesus shows a better way. Blessed are the meek. You will be blessed if you are gentle. Loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you ties very well with Jesus' words. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all manner of things against you falsely for my name. And Christians living in the world are to be light, reflecting their Lord Jesus in faith and life. We are to have an influence on the earth that emanates from the state of happiness that Jesus taught, living righteously from the heart. And so you can see how these beatitudes interplay in the life of the Christian and how they even interplay in the things that Jesus talks about from verse 21, once he finishes telling us about happiness. Last Sunday, we explored three aspects of this teaching of Jesus. Um, again, anger, adultery, and annulment or divorce. And today, we shall see those three more, swearing not, um, striking back, and showing love. You have heard that it has been said, verse 33, you shall not swear. One of the first questions that comes to mind is, does God forbid swearing in a court of law? Don't we see people swearing in courts every day? Lifting up their Bibles and saying, I swear in the name of God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The swearing that is talked about here is not judicial swearing. That is not the issue. This law that Jesus talks about here prohibits perjury, speaking what is not true, lying under oath. As well, it prohibits casual, trivial, and careless use of God's name, lightly speaking God's name for no reason. And you know how much of that is in our world today? Almost everywhere you go, people are taking the name of God in vain, using it to advance their own selfish purposes. So Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely. You shall not make false vows. Where does Jesus get this? Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Neither shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Don't do it. Don't profane my name. The overlying commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. It is commandment number 3 in God's moral law. 
It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished, will not hold him guiltless, who takes my name in vain. Centuries ago, some people came up with a question and answer format that I mentioned last Sunday on how we are to understand these questions, on how we are to understand these commandments, and they put it in a question and answer format. And one of the questions, number 60, asks, what is required in the third commandment? What does God require? God requires the holy and reverent use of his name, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his words, and his works. To be in awe of how we speak about who he is and what he has done. Another question is, what is forbidden in the third commandment? Is there anything forbidden? Yes, it forbids all profaning, all disrespecting, all manner of defiling and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Is there a reason that is attached to the third commandment why we should not take the name of God in vain? Yes, there is. The reason that is joined to this commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from people, yet the Lord our God will not let them escape his righteous judgment. Today the Lord is letting it pass when people take his name in vain. And seeing all the evil that is in the world, some people have even asked, why isn't the Lord raining fire and brimstone on us like he did, for example, with Sodom and Gomorrah? But we see the loving kindness and the patience of God desiring that people would repent. But a day is coming when he will execute his judgment. It will be a righteous judgment. And even those who take his name in vain will not escape that judgment. And so God protects the awe and reverence of his name by forbidding careless using of his name. Jesus says, fulfill your vows to the Lord. You have heard it has been said. Fulfill your vows to the Lord. You shall perform what you have sworn. If you say that you will do something, then you have to do it. Does God require that? Yes, he does. Think, for example, about Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. If someone vows a vow unto the Lord or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You've heard someone saying, my word is my bond. If I tell you something, I will fulfill it. I think those people are very rare. Most people just say things, but they don't intend to live them out. We are not the first ones. The Jews interpreted this to mean they were only to observe those oaths made to God and not people. Vows that were made in God's name. As long as I am vowing in God's name, I have to fulfill it. But if I just make a promise to someone or a commitment to someone, I don't have to fulfill it. How many of you are disappointed when someone makes a promise and they don't fulfill? When someone commits to do something and they don't see it through? Listen to what, Jesus, to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, from verse 21. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, what goes from your mouth. 
just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. If you say something to the Lord, if you say something to someone, you must be prepared to fulfill it, to make sure that you do what you have said. So why, for example, when you go in a court of law, when you are having that wedding ceremony, you are asked to repeat certain words, and there are witnesses who are listening, that I vow to love this woman or this man in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health, regardless of what comes in our life, which I don't know, which I have no control over. But this day I'm standing in the presence of God before these people to say, I am going to live it out. If you have a contract from your employer that says you shall work for me from this number of years, be careful before you put pen on paper. Read it through. Sign it. When you sign it, be ready to leave it out. Unless there are circumstances that come that make that impossible. If you sign a contract with someone and you're a business person, be prepared to leave it out. God does call us to think about these things seriously. Many times documents are brought to my desk by Juliet or by our admin assistant. And, this, and sometimes it's a very long document when you are registering for this merchant called MTN brings me a, a, an al, almost 30 pages of a document. And it's written in very small font. And you know what I wanted to do? Just sign every page like they have asked. I said, no, I have to read it. I bargained it in my mind. Do I really want to read this? This is all the mumble, jumbo, and all those things. At the end of the day, you have to sign it. Those of you who carry a smartphone, you know some apps tell you these are our service and confidentiality agreements. I don't know how many of you read it, I don't. I always think I have to use this anyway, and these days you can't even use anything on these devices unless you agree. Have you ever noticed? Even your radio, there are certain, there are certain um, permissions that you have no control over. Even when you want to access a document, even your messages, you have to give approval after approval after approval. If you don't, you can't use it. Sometimes I get frustrated and I throw it away. And then my wife asks me, you can't stay without a smartphone. People today are communicating on WhatsApp and email. And I say, I can. Because I'm frustrated by all the, all the small details and all the things that they force you to use. shall be careful to perform what goes from your lips. Just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Does God keep his promises? Are we made in the image and likeness of God? Then we must also keep our promises. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifices of fools. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thoughts to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Let your words be few. Eh. And therefore, most people, their words are many. When you make a vow to God, verse 4, do not be late 
in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Rather, fear God. The whole point Jesus is giving here is you're doing this out of fear for God. Before you think of committing it, you're, but uh, I am answerable to God. Am I really ready to commit to this? Let me take a step back and give it some more thought. That's what has been said. Jesus says, don't swear at all. Verse 34. And Jesus is not forbidding swearing in any circumstance, but he's forbidding swearing in these four ways that he goes ahead to detail in the verses that follow. These four ways which were common in Jesus' day. He says, don't swear by heaven. The heaven is God's throne. Isaiah 66 verse 1 is the one which tells us that heaven is God's throne. Isaiah makes that clear in chapter 66 and verse 1. Do not swear by God's throne where he sits to reign in heaven, not by the one who is higher than you and who lives higher than you do. And we want to address God, we always think of high heaven up there. Do not swear by the earth. The earth is his footstool. God created it and he's everywhere in it. You created neither the heavens nor the earth. I have no claim to either. I am a creature. I am not the creator. I am the clay, not the potter. God made me and placed me here. He did not have to make you and place you here, but for his own good pleasure, he did. And so don't swear by the heaven, it's not by the earth, it's not yours. <laughs> Oh, then what is mine? Don't swear by Jerusalem. That is the city of the great king. I swear by Jerusalem. That's what some people would say. I swear by the earth. Don't do it. Psalm, 42 verse, Psalm 48 verse 2 says that beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So don't swear by that place that represented God's dwelling. Verse 36, you shall not even swear by your head because you cannot make one hair on your head white or black. Apparently my beard is becoming more and more white and everyone I'm meeting, I've met some church members this day or people, Godfrey, the elder today, came and asked me, hey, Pastor Martin, what is happening to your hair. And I say, don't you see Jesus says, I cannot make one hair white or black. So it's not me. It is him. Don't swear by your head. Your brain is in your head. Your brain is the picture of life. Jesus means do not swear by your own life. Or even this life, is it yours? Not at all. God gave you life and he can stop giving it. God controls it. You cannot even naturally change your hair color. Imagine that. You can't do it. You can artificially do it, but you can't naturally do it. Only God can do that. 
So why does Jesus tell his disciples these things in the presence of the multitude? Because the Jews had twisted God's word to mean you can make a promise or a vow with your mouth, but then on the spot, break it in your heart. That's where it becomes invalid. See the foolishness of that. As long as I utter it verbally, and someone hears it, I've made it. But in my heart, I've canceled it. You know, like the way people cross their fingers and say one thing, and they say, my fingers were crossed. Ha. The Jews had twisted God's word to mean, you can swear by anything that is not God's name. You can swear by Jerusalem. You can swear by heaven. You can swear by your head. You can swear by the earth. You can swear by all the things that people swear about today. That way you do not have to fulfill the vow or the oath. Since it is not in God's name, you can break it. That's why Jesus says these things. And so Jesus corrects that by saying all those things are his. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, head, whatever it is that you see is his. Came from him. To use them in swearing is ultimately not to fear God. Every vow you made appeals to God in one way or the other. Mentioning God's name in casual conversation reduces the awe of it, the reverence of it. And I've read all those scriptures. I've taken time to read them so that you can see that God, who is a God of love, also calls his people to fear him, to be in reverence of him. He has given us grace and liberty to come before him. But we should not use that liberty as a cloak of unrighteousness. We should not use that liberty to sin. What then are you to do? Verse 37. Here's what you're to do. Let your conversation be yes, yes, no, no. That's it. How many of you have those conversations every day? Did you do this? Yes. Did you do the other? No. Is that what Jesus means? Of course not. Otherwise, all our words in this world would be limited to only two words. You can't even ask a question because your conversation has always to be yes, no. James says in chapter 5, verse 12 of James, Above all, my brothers, do not swear. Don't swear by heaven or earth or any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And what's the point? That regardless of your responses, there is honesty and truth. You are never on the fence. You are never speaking in ambiguity. It's not double speak. You're not concealing some things in your words. Some people are very good at that. But Jesus says, don't do it. If you must swear, keep that for those special circumstances whereby law or for the gospel you must vow in God's name. Refuse to use in a trivial or in a trifle manner the name of God. Refuse. Refuse it entirely. And don't even participate with people who do it. Be simple, be truthful, be plain. Whether you are someone who uses a lot of words when speaking or you use a few words. Whether you are an introvert or an extrovert. Be honest, be simple, be truthful. God has made us differently. But these principles do not change. It is, after all, the devil who hides in words, isn't it? who twists words, who corrupts speech. Has God said? It's the devil. It's not God. 
So don't swear. Number two, striking back. Verse 38. You have heard it has been said. Where has it been said? In Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 to verse 24. You shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for foot, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The context of this is Jesus was saying if people are struggling among each other or between each other, and then they happen to hit a pregnant woman who was nearby, and then she falls, and then she gets injured, these people are to repay exactly as the husband will determine, uh, life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Seems to be a fair rule. But even this was only to be administered by judges. It was not for settling personal grievances. And the Jews had used this for revenge purposes. Whatever someone did to them, they retaliated in the same way. If you abuse me, I abuse you. If you steal from me, I steal from you. If you hit me, I hit you back. Jesus says that you resist not evil. Do not resist an evil person, meaning I should let others take advantage of me. Yes, no. I cannot fight back, no. I allow myself to be defrauded, absolutely not. That's not what Jesus means. But he means do not retaliate. Do not respond to a madman with his madness. There are many madmen on the streets, aren't there? And you meet one of them and they want to commit some mad act. Do you stop your vehicle? Do you get off the border and you respond with your madness? No. How shall we differentiate who is mad from who is sane anyway, if you do that? Do not return evil for evil. If you do that, how will the good person be distinguished from the evil person? Someone once said that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But whoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn the other also. The point of Jesus here is that if you suffer because of what is righteous, do not retaliate with anger and revenge. Of course, which is the natural inclination. Leave the matter with God. Let him revenge on your behalf. Don't retaliate. Just leave it with God. And this is not easy, brothers and sisters. Because the natural tendency is to do to that person what they have done to you, if not worse. And people go with words such like, you will know who I am. Uh, you did this to me, I will do worse to you. I'm not just going to sit back and take it. Jesus says, leave the matter with God. If everyone will sue you at the law and take away your coat. Now, dressing at the time consisted of four components. At the time Jesus is talking, there was an inner garment, an outer garment, four main components anyway. There was a girdle or a belt, you know, belt of truth in Ephesians 6, and then there were sandals. It's how people would dress at that time. And the inner garment, the coat or the tunic, your Bible may say, was made of linen. It was wrapped around the entire body. And it went from the neck to the knees, and it was long or short-sleeved. 
the outer garment or the cloak, it was loose fitting, it was wrapped around the body. You remember when the soldiers took Jesus' cloak and there were several soldiers so they could not, they had to decide who is going to take it. Shall we divide it among ourselves? No, let us cast lots. It was just one entire piece of cloth that, um, that was without seam. And you find sometimes people take it off while they were working. Then there was the girdle or the belt and the sandals. Jesus says, whoever wants to take that from you, the, the outer garment, give him also the inner garment. Take both of them. Let me see where they will take you. What shall you do to them, with them? Whoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him two miles. The Roman government officials, when they were on their way to pass one message from the king, the emperor to, to another region of the kingdom, could compel someone, anyone along the way to stop and carry whatever burden it was or whatever message it was for one mile. And you had to do it. Jesus says, if they stop you on the way and compel you to go one mile, go to one kilometer. For those, <laughs> how much is one mile in kilometers? Two kilometers or almost two kilometers? Yeah, two kilometers. Go for. This thing was so bad at that time, the Jews had trained their children the exact number of steps you can take which will sum up to one mile. So that if you're carrying that burden, you just, at the end of exactly one mile, you can lay it down. Jesus says, go to. Go the extra mile. The first one by force, the second one by freedom. The first one on demand, the second one by desire. The first one by compulsion, the second one by conviction. I'm going to do this and there is nothing that you can do to me. I have done the one required by law. I am going the extra one. Give to the person who asks you. Don't deny the person who borrows from you. And what's the point? It's good to be a giver. Even under circumstances where you do not have all the facts, giving is preferred to holding back. And of course, we need to balance uh, prudence with compassion while we are giving. Asking questions such as, who is it that is asking, by the way? Do they have a good credit score, so to speak? Have I taken care of my family's needs first? Is the person who is borrowing a lazy person? We should give in view that we also ask and we beg from God for provision. Do we not? So if others ask and beg from us, we should remember we did the same before God and he helped us. We should be mindful and caring of those who ask and even beg. So Jesus asks that instead of retaliating eye for eye, tooth for tooth, leave the matter with him. Let him avenge. He's both merciful and just. We are not. But he is. He is. The example is that of a, the idea is that of a, of, a, of someone who is caught in a particular crime. They are arrested, taken before a judge. And the judge is simply supposed to administer the law. But when they stand before the judge, they find, oh, the judge is my father. And the father realizes, this is my son. What is he supposed to do? That balance between mercy and justice, we can't, but God can't. 
He did it very well on the cross. His justice and his mercy properly delivered. We can't achieve that, but God can. So leave the matter with God. Lastly, showing love. Verse 43. You have heard it has been said. Where has it been said? Leviticus 19. It has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But has it? Listen to what God says. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin against him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Where is the hate your enemy there? It's not there. God is love. He required his people to be loving as well. But the Jewish leaders thought, okay, we are supposed to, we are supposed to love God. Okay, with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. So what I'm going to do so that I can love my neighbor is to hate everyone else. I will create other laws around this law. If I don't like anyone else, I will only focus on my neighbor. I only love you. I am fulfilling God's law. Jesus says, love your enemies. Eh. Maybe you could hear the pin drop if you were in Jesus' day. Because they start thinking of the Philistines. They start thinking of the Moabites, the Jebusites, and some of those were already gone entirely. They start thinking of the enemies at that time, the Roman government, these people who were oppressing us. Jesus, you are saying that we are supposed to love them. How could they love all the surrounding evil nations that hated them? That were pebbles in their shoes and thorns in their clothes. Jesus says, care for them. Speak good things about them. Pray for them. I've always wondered whether the apostles were ever praying for Saul before God saved him and sent him into the mission field as Paul. Think of the most wicked person that you know today. Someone has to come to mind, surely. But you say, this person is really wicked. This person is very, very evil. Think of them. Do you pray for them to be saved? You are to love them, Jesus says. You are to speak good things about them. You are to pray for them. It is not easy, but there is grace for that. You wonder why Jesus asks this from his disciples. How would Jesus ask them to do something like this? That people who explicitly or implicitly, directly or indirectly, have made it their life mission to bring you down. You pray for them. You love them. so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 45. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, to his friends and to his enemies. What is this? This is the common grace of God, isn't it? He's the Father who makes his son to shine. He's the Father who makes his rain to fall 
There are massively wicked people that receive the same enjoyment of sun that you receive, the same enjoyment of rain that you enjoy. I heard recently on the BBC that I can't remember which country, but they have sent some scientists somewhere in space uh, and, and are going to be doing all manner of explorations and research to discover where the stars came from. I was driving. <laughs> I laughed them to scorn. I remember God created the stars. Why are you spending all these billions of Uganda shillings trying to discover where the stars came from? This is so foolish. But then as I listened more, I realized these are people who don't know God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So they are going to foolishly waste a lot of money doing that. And I told God, God, save these people and open their eyes. That they would see that you created all things. Still, God is going to make his sun to shine on those people. And his rain to fall on them. And he may preserve their lives longer than people that you think shouldn't even live longer than they ought to. It's a common grace of God. Furthermore, what is the alternative? Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. If you salute your brothers only, what are you doing more than others? You have not gone out of your way when you love your wife or your children. That is a given. You're supposed to love your wife, your mother, your father, your children your brothers and sisters here at church, you are supposed to love one another. You have not done anything good. I cannot go and say to my wife, wife, you should put my name on a pedestal. See how much I've loved you? No. I married her because I love her. Or at least, as I've discovered over the years, I married her to love her. But the point is nonetheless lost. You have not done anything extraordinary when you love your friends, your co-laborers, or those you have common interests with. If you want to demonstrate and experience what love means, go out of your way. Go to your adversary, go to your opponent, go to your enemy, go to your accuser, go to your rival and do them a good deed. Speak kind words unto them. Tell them you pray for them and actually pray for them. Take a precious gift unto them. Bake some cookies, uh, prepare some posho and skumawiki, uh, some matoke and, uh, and, and binyaboe and go and knock on their door and say, my dear, whoever it is, I've brought this for you. Hopefully they don't take it and smash it on your face with it. Love your enemies. Love those who despitefully use you. And Jesus finishes this by saying, you must be perfect. You must be perfect even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. And this is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13. Everything Jesus is saying, everything Jesus is preaching here, he says in verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law, to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Listen, my disciples, listen, the multitudes. I am just simply telling you what is in God's law. Deuteronomy 18 says you shall be perfect with the Lord your God. And perfection here means just that. It means absolute perfection. That is how God is. There is no error. There is no mistake. There is no impurity. There is no imperfection of any kind with God. None. Being his child, you ought to reflect him. 
And while we shall not attain this perfection while we are still in this while we are still here in this sinful world, it is still the standard of God. It is still the mark that God has drawn somewhere. This is the mark. This is the goal. What then shall be our attitude? Similar to that of Paul. Similar to that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 16. Not that I have already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but what do I do? I press on. If I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not count myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature, whereby your version may say all who are perfect, let us have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. However, let us keep living by that same standard by which we have attained. Our gracious Father, you require that we would be perfect in our standing with you. You require of us that we would keep as our mark perfection. And while we are still sinners and may not be able to achieve that today, we know that you have given us grace to be able to go through this life, to be able to live a sanctified life, to be able to do all things that pertain to salvation and sanctification by the grace that Christ Jesus gives. Help us when you are thinking about the matter of taking the name of God in vain, about swearing, about taking odds, help us to fulfill what we promise. Help us to be careful before we commit to something that we would leave it out. Help us not to retaliate when that is our natural inclination to. When we really want to retaliate, when someone has wronged us or offended us or said things that are hurtful, Help us not to take revenge, but to leave the matter with you, for you are merciful and just. Help us to show love to our rivals, our opponents, to those people who don't even like us at all. And some make that clear, some don't. Whatever the case, help us to show love to all people, because you have shown your love for us, the love of Christ, has, shed, has been shed abroad in our hearts. And therefore, we must do the same to our wives and husbands, to children. Yes, to those people who are near us. But more than that, to even those people who are far from us, so that we may be children of our Father who is in heaven, the one who makes his son to rise on the just and on the unjust. It's the common grace of God. Thank you for this common grace. Be with us this week. Help us to think about these things, to meditate on them, and to live them out. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. 
Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church, Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.